As we are in the book of Romans, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We are just walking through the book of Romans week by week. We're three weeks into this series, and we are about to finish chapter (laughs) 1. So at that pace, uh, we'll be in this for, what, 48 weeks? Uh, So it's good with you, Steve? Okay, good. He gave me thumbs up, so we're just going to keep on moving that way. No, we'll, we'll do, here's the thing. There might be parts or, or sections or chapters that don't require as much time, but I don't want to shortchange um, and just rush through something for the sake of a calendar. And so we want to teach faithfully the text that's there. So as you're turning to Romans chapter 1, let me ask you this. How do you feel and how do you respond when someone comes up to you and says, do you want the good news or the bad news first? How many of you by show of hands would say, I'll take the good news first? Okay, very few. First service didn't have a single hand on good news first. Let's see all the hands for I'd rather have the bad news first. Why is it that that's more common? I'm in that camp. I want the bad news first, and here's why. Because I know I can take the bad news when I know that there's hope coming of good news, right? I can take it, give me the bad, because I know something good is coming or an answer to the bad is coming. And that's why I think statistically or even by your own affirmation that many of us, more of us think that way, that we have the ability to, to endure knowing that good is coming, And I think sometimes, though, we have situations where it's just like bad news and bad news. And when that's the case, you know, I think about a time where I had to give bad news and bad news. And when you do that, you try and find a higher good news that you can give to soften the bad news. For example, like the night when my wife got home and I said, so here's the deal, honey. No one got hurt and everything's going to be okay. I was giving her higher good news for the good news I was, or the bad news that I was about to give her, which was I flew my drone into the TV, (laughs) and the TV is ruined. (laughs) But the drone was okay. She didn't really care about the drone. And so, because I knew the way that that information was going to be received... I was like, let me try and reach for a higher good. (laughs) Everyone's okay, no one's hurt, and it's just things, right? Like it's just a TV. No, that's just a few hundred dollars that we now have to pay if we want a new TV. And I think I did suffer a few weeks of like the spiderweb TV as punishment for my tomfoolery. Paul, in his letter to the Romans... He had his introduction, and then last week we went into Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he launches into the primary subject of this letter, which is the good news. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. In fact, let's look there, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, which means good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first And also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, meaning from beginning to end, it's by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Paul launches into the primary purpose of this letter that he wrote to the Romans, this gospel, this good news, saying it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Jesus Christ because this is how people get saved. You might think I should be ashamed of the fact that my Lord was crucified on a Roman cross, but I'm not because that's how people get saved. You might think I should be ashamed of this gospel when there's more maybe profound messages of philosophy and deep thought that was prevalent in Greek era. But Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed. I'm going to preach the simplicity of Christ crucified because that's how people get saved. I'm not ashamed of it. But this raises the question, what do we need to be saved from in the first place? Why do we need to be saved? What are we even going to be saved from? Salvation is a term that, that we can so carelessly throw out without consideration for what it means or how it could be understood or even misunderstood. There's a set of assumptions that we make when we use terminology like saved or, or are you saved or have you found salvation. It's almost like going up to a stranger and saying, hey, have you been found? With like no context, you're going, uh... I mean, I know where I am, if that's what you're asking. I'm not lost. Is that what you're asking me? Or going up to someone and saying, have you been healed? To which they might say, from what? Like, sometimes we can use terms in Christianity and in Christian lingo in a way that we don't consider the true meaning of them or make sure that, under pe that people understand what we mean when we say them. See, one of the problems that leads to people misunderstanding the good news is that we use these, this assumptive lingo sometime without helping people understand what those terms mean. Paul knows that to truly understand the salvation of God, which is the good news, we have to know the demise of man, the bad news. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? In other words, to really understand the good news, we have to know and understand the gravity of the bad news. If someone was paying off your debt, someone comes up to you and says, hey, I want you to be debt free. I'm going to write a check to cancel all your debts right now. Now, there's no one who would be ungrateful. You would be thankful and grateful for that. But the level of your gratitude would be directly connected to your knowledge of the quantity of debt. Like if you haven't looked at your statement in a while and you feel like it's not that bad, you'd be like, oh, well, how kind, thank you, that's amazing. You're so generous. But if you recently looked at your statement and you saw that you were negative thousand, hundred thousand dollars, negative a million dollars, a billion dollars, someone comes up to you and says, I'm going to write a check to pay that off. You're not going, well, you're so sweet. How kind. You're so generous. No, you're crying, you're hugging, you're snot, ugly tears. You're weeping. Why? Because of the gravity of the debt that you had that was just wiped out. The most common cause of nominal Christianity, passive Christianity, unthankful faith, obligatory service, no delight worship, 
those things all come from having never felt the gravity of what was looming over you, which is the weight of the wrath of God against the sin and ungodliness of man. Like if someone, let's say you pulled up to a five-star restaurant and they've got a valet out front and you park and someone comes up and opens the door for you to that person, you say, oh, thank you, sweetheart, you're so kind. You're grateful, a little, to a degree you expect them to do that. But to the person who uses the jaws of life to pry the door open and pull you out of the smoking, flaming car right before it bursts into flames and would have consumed you, the thankfulness to that person is different than the valet. Again, you're crying. You're grateful. They just saved your life. Nominal Christianity, a Christianity that treats Jesus like the garnish on our lives, that puts the king of the universe in a category of, if I have time, that Christianity is found in the heart of those who, who might just believe in God or even know that Jesus died on the cross, but that mental ascent hasn't sunk down into their hearts wherein they have looked at the gravity of their sin. Those who know the gravity of their sin, those who smell the smoke of the engine on fire and know they're trapped and don't have a means to get themselves out of the car, that person weeps for joy when they are saved. They live forever grateful. They have a new outlook on life. They're grateful that someone saved them from death. Paul launches into his conversation about the gospel, the good news, not by saying, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus Christ because it's going to help you live a successful life. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's going to help those of you who are lonely be lonely no more. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus Christ because he's going to help all your dreams come true. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's how we're going to figure out your physical ailments. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that weight that you've been trying to trim, it's finally going to help you trim that weight. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that self-esteem that you have that's so low, it's going to boost you up a notch. No. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. There is a different gravity this is why the gospel is truly good news. You need the gospel because it is how we get saved. Well, again, what do we need to be saved from in the first place? Let's jump ahead a few chapters. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Paul, talking about Jesus, says this. Since therefore, in verse 9, 5, 9, we have now been justified by his blood on the cross, meaning we've been made right before God, not guilty because of the blood of Jesus. Much more shall we be saved by him from the what? Wait a minute. The, the wrath of God. We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
Now, we don't like that. We don't like the idea of God having wrath. God is love. Yes, he absolutely is love. And what some people will do is create false dichotomies and pit God's love against God's wrath as if they cannot be one. And we'll get more into that in a moment. Now, like a master prosecutor, after Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this good news because it's how we find salvation in Jesus Christ, he's now going to bring the charges against all of humanity, painting the picture of the problem or the bad news. Before Paul begins layer by layer peeling back the onion of the gospel throughout this letter to Rome, he says, we've got to understand the bad news. Chapter 1, verse 18, we'll continue reading. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling the mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Ungodliness at its core is suppressing the truth. At its core, ungodliness comes from suppressing the truth. What truth? Well, the truth that God is more glorious than anything and more generous than anyone. The condemnation that Paul lobbied against them is that their suppression of the truth looked like not honoring God or giving him thanks. Paul's, Paul is assuming that honoring God and giving him glory and thanking him is the natural response of acknowledging him and knowing his truth. According to this passage, everyone knows. Everyone knows this truth, this truth as much as they want to deny it, as much as they want to reason against it, as much as we want to pretend that there are watertight arguments against the existence of God. Every single person knows. Why? Because it's screaming in our faces on a day-to-day -day basis through creation. Paul's saying God's invisible attributes are visible to all. When you look at everything that God has created, your heart says there's a creator. That's why for throughout history, civilization after civilization, people group after people group throughout history all around the world have always turned their heart to some kind of concept of a God because their heart looks at everything and goes, there's a God. Every single person sees the handiwork of the creator and their heart says there is a creator the same way that it would be foolishness for us to look at a beautiful masterpiece painting and go, there is no artist. 
Creation testifies to the almighty, all-powerful God. And every person knows and therefore, Paul says, is without excuse. And because everyone knows, they suppress the truth that they know. Why? Why would someone see the obvious truth in their face about God and then suppress that truth and reject it? Because when your heart loves something that others are warning you against, you either have to heed those warnings and turn away or you disagree with them. And nine times out of ten, that disagreement becomes a packaged deal where you don't only disagree with them, but you demonize them and vilify them because they are threatening what you love. We have all seen this. You've all had that family member, that brother, sister, that son, that daughter, that friend whom you care about and you love and you see that they are with someone who is toxic for them. Because you love them and you care about them and you don't want them in an unhealthy, toxic relationship, because of love you say, hey, I'm not so sure that they're good for you. Like it seems like every time you're together, this is happening or they treat you this way or whatever it might be, that because you see from the outside and you don't have the affections for that person that they have, you're able to see the situation for what it is and you go, hey, this is bad news. And they might go, you don't know anything. You don't know them. I love them, and if you knew them the way I knew them, you would love them too. You're just a judgy, judgmental judgerton. <laughs> all you do is look at these things, and you nitpick and tear apart what you don't like about them, and you can't see all the wonderful beauty of who they are. Actually, you know what? You're just jealous. You know that our love is real, and you wish you had it, and so because of that, you want to drive a wedge between us. That person, feeling their affections threatened, turns to the person who loves them and cares about them and is trying to help them and then makes them the villain. The problem is that humans love sin. We're born that way. We are born in sin, loving sin. It's evident throughout history. It's evident as soon as Adam and Eve sin, they pass that sin nature on to their children, and we see it where Cain murders his brother. Generation after generation after generation throughout the Old Testament, you look at all the patriarchs of the faith, and you go, wow, Abraham had such great faith. And oh, he went into the servant apart from what God said and created um, a real mess of the situation in the moment where he didn't have faith. We have David who slayed the mighty giant and led God's armies to victory and then committed adultery and murder to cover up the adultery. It's evident that sin nature that Adam and Eve welcomed in was passed on to their children, to their children, all the way to you and me. Humans love sin because we are born in sin, born with hearts bent toward ungodliness and the passions of our flesh. And when you love something more than anything else, to the extent that you're not willing to let go of it, 
Even when people try to help you see that it's terrible for you, that it's destructive, if you love it to the extent that you won't part from it, then you must suppress the truth that your heart sees and knows. What, what your heart sees and knows, what your conscience tells you, what preachers tell you, what the word of God tells you, what the Holy Spirit tells you, that truth that you know that this is wrong because of the affections of the heart, you have to suppress that truth and go, no, it's not wrong. There's no such thing as sin. That's a made-up social construct to try and control people. And because we suppress the truth, because of its threatening of our affections, of our love for sin, people became foolish in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is what sin does. When we ignore our conscience, Worse, when we ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit, our hearts become darkened and hardened by sin. See, sin is not a knowledge problem. It is an affection problem. It's not do we or don't we know the right things. Paul would later argue that the law of God is written on our hearts. You don't need someone to come and say, hey, the Bible says don't do that because the law of God is written in our hearts. You know when you're doing something wrong. Your conscience tells you. The Holy Spirit tells you. People who love you and care about you tell you. And we suppress that truth because we love the sin. It's not whether or not do we know that we should or shouldn't do the thing it's that we love the thing. And so therefore, the only option if we want to preserve and not let go of the thing that Scripture tells us is sinful and ungodly is to suppress the truth and go, no, I don't believe that or I don't agree with that or God couldn't be like that. Je Jesus taught this same principle to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus sneaks out at midnight to go have a secret conversation uh, with Jesus so he doesn't get condemned by the other Pharisees and he's asking Jesus all these questions and Jesus gets to a point in the conversation in John 3 verse 19 where he says this and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil this is an affection thing here he says for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true and comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus is teaching Nicodemus thousands of years ago. You want to know why people suppress the truth? Why they want to stay hidden in the corners of darkness and say, keep that light away from me? Don't talk to me about sin. Don't tell me that this thing that I like and love is sin. Don't do that because they love the darkness. We loved the darkness. Until you've been made new by the Holy Spirit of God, our proneness is to love sin because we were born that way. Paul reveals the problem. And he doesn't talk about our felt needs. When Paul's writing to the Romans and other churches, he's not going, what are their felt needs? They probably want to learn how to have their best life now. So let me write something about that. Paul doesn't talk about our felt needs. You know why? Because our felt needs 
Our felt needs are not our real needs. Our real needs are to be saved from the wrath of God. There's no greater need you have. The wrath of God that is impending and imminent because of our choosing to suppress the truth and exchange the glory of the immortal God for the glory of created things, lesser things. Sin is loving the created things rather than the creator. Mankind doesn't like this, this concept of the wrath of God, because we think it makes God out to be some angry, vengeful tyrant. No, it is our love for sin that paints him that way, just like the person who's going, oh, you don't know them. You're so mean. You're so judgmental. If you just got to know them, you'd love them too. You have to demonize those who are threatening what you love when what you love is destructive and you really know better. If God were not wrathful against sin, he would not be God. He would not only or he would not be holy. He would not be just. He would not be righteous. Just like if a criminal broke into your home and committed atrocious crimes against your family and you went to the courthouse when that criminal was going to stand trial, you are sitting there in the audience wanting the judge to be just, right? No one hears that gavel come down when the evidence is all clear that there's guilt. No one hears that gavel come down and go, wow, that's vengeful. Wow, how, how tyrannically mean. I can't believe that judge would do that. No, you go, thank you. Justice was served. The reason, though, we don't like this in relationship to God is because all of us are guilty. And we have been guilty many times and in many ways. And that is why we want a God who's not like that. Because we know we are subject to that same wrath. We need salvation because we have loved what God created more than we have loved God. This is the essence of sin. The sins we commit in our life, whatever bad deed we do or the good things we don't do, those sinful actions, they come from a sinful heart. We have exchanged what is most beautiful, most wonderful, most glorious, most worthy of devotion, worthy of affection, worthy of adoration, worthy of priority. We have taken that and we have set our affections and devotion on things the Creator created. That exchange has grievous consequences. That exchange is not a good deal. Whenever your favorite sports team makes a splash trade, whether it's for a star wide receiver or a starting pitcher or for some incredibly skilled point guard, whenever your team makes that splash, that big trade, all the sports pundits start coming together and going, who won the trade? Was it a good trade? Was it a bad trade? Good for them, bad for them. Let's grade this trade, A, B, C, D, F. Was it good or not? And although the exchange of our sin was fair, it was not a good trade for us. What we pay for sin 
against what we gain for sin is the worst trade we have ever made. It's the worst trade in all of history, worse than some bad sports trade, worse than some bad economic national trade deal, worse than any trade that could ever have been made, is exchanging the glory of God for the glory of created things, worshiping the created things rather than the creator. We trade the eternal glory of the immortal God for fleeting empty pleasures of sin. And the payment, according to Romans 6.23, for the wages or the payment of sin is, say it like you know what it says, the wages of sin is the payment for our sin. That's why Paul then says, but the gift Not your wages, not what you earn, but the free gift, the grace of God. The free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is good news coming. Thank you, Lord. We'll pick up in verse 26. For the reason God gave them, or for this reason, because we've exchanged the truth and suppressed the truth and worshiped the created things rather than the creator, for those reasons, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here comes the fun part of my job. Let's just talk about what the text is having us talk about. That's expository preaching, walking through the text. I would say that every church that is affirming of sin is not a true church. And it ought not make us hoorah. It ought to make us grieve. Those churches are suppressing the truth about God and I fear for their preachers and leaders. They will have to stand one day before the holy God and give an account for the people that they led astray. Give an account for knowing the clear truth from creation as well as from scripture and suppressing that truth because they were afraid of what it might cost them. Forgetting that James 3.1 says, Not many of you should desire to be teachers, for you will stand a stricter judgment. That's why I'm saying this stuff today. I can please people or I can please God, and, and I'm tempted to please people, but I'm going to stand before God one day. So let's go with what Scripture says. They're afraid of what it might cost them to stand up for the truth. They have signed up to pay, therefore, an infinitely higher 
costs. They don't want to pay for persecution, don't want to pay for being called a hater or bigot or whatever it might be. They don't want to pay the price of going against culture, and they will pay a higher price if they don't repent. And for all the wisdom and knowledge and intellect that sinful mankind has professed to possess, we can sit and look at the absolute just buffoonery that a suppression of the truth has led to. We can't tell the difference anymore between a man and a woman. And we get to a point where that degree of utter nonsense is embraced, not only embraced but celebrated And we think, how did we get here? Because we suppress the truth more and more and more until the most basic and fundamental clear truths are now up for debate and relegated to our subjectivity. That's where the slope slips to. And I'm sorry if I'm offending you this morning or bothering you, but the gospel is offensive because it says all of us need to repent. The challenge that arises from this issue is the fact that it has become an identity issue. If you were a pathological liar, no one would be saying, hey, let's have liar month. (laughs) And hey, that's cool. That's just you. That's who you are. You were born that way. Let's, Let's celebrate it. No, we'd be like, hey, that's really destructive and not helpful. And that's gonna lead to pain and hurt in many different ways, so you should probably stop lying. We do need to accept and love deeply. And sometimes loving someone is telling them that they are putting themselves in harm's way. A loving and caring doctor tells the patient with heart disease, hey, you have heart disease, and you need to make some changes in your lifestyle or you're going to die. It would actually be unloving to say, hey, you're you, let's just celebrate the way you love cake. Listen, God loves the LGBTQ plus individual, and we should too. We should love them deeply. We should love them the same way that every single one of you sinners has been loved. He also loves them enough and us enough to diagnose our hearts and call sin, sin. The same way that your and my pride is sin. The same way that our lust is sin, our greed is sin, our gossip is sin, our gluttony is sin. We're not gonna not call sin, sin. And that doesn't mean we just pick one or one community and go off and ignore the fact that after Paul talks about homosexuality, he then goes into a list that mentions covetousness. And before we start going, get them, pastor, you set them straight, you tell them, we keep reading and we find all of ourselves on this list. Every human on earth is called to repent of sin. Whether it's homosexuality, 
or lust or greed or lying or gossip or gluttony. We want a scarlet letter one group to make ourselves feel justified about what we call little white lies. White lies are damnable before God. They're not white. <sighs> Super fun message this morning. We are not to be jerks about this. We are to remember the gravity of our sin when we are aiming to help others out of their sin. For every one of us who's thinking, yeah, get him, preacher, preach that truth, this list that Paul mentions, this list should make us go, oh, don't get him. Because he said disobedient to parents. None of us can raise our hand on that one and say innocent. We should, this list makes all of us go, I mean, don't get us. God, please be merciful. Please, God, be gracious. This is why, because of the bad news, I'll not let today's bad news be left alone without the good news. The good news for every one of us. The good news for all of us sinners. And let me say this. Anyone you know who is living in sin, pray for them. Love them. Look for the right opportunity to say the right thing. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide your conversations. Do not quit praying for them. When I got saved, I had a friend who, who I talked to and said, Stephen, I've been praying for you for five years. <clears throat> the good news is found in Romans chapter 5. We'll skip ahead and we'll get there later, but I want to go ahead and jump there today. Because of the weight of the bad news, there is good news as well. Do you want the bad news or the good news first? There was Paul going, I know you want the bad news first. And later in the letter, he's going, here's good news. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you remember in chapter 1 where he just said, we suppress the truth in ungodliness. And here he's saying, at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. You and me, we need to hear that and weep for joy for the jaws of life pulling us out of the car. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. For every single one of us who see the meteorite of God's wrath 
coming straight at us for our being disobedient to our parents or our greed or our lust or our lying or our homosexuality or whatever different sin you and I might have found ourselves under the wrath of God, Jesus comes in and gets in the way and says, I've got it. See, God's wrath and God's love meet at the cross. Thank you, Lord. Amen? Why is the cross so wonderful? Why do we preach the cross? Why is the cross so beautiful? Why is it not just a part of the message or a part of the story, but the turning point of history? Because the cross is the place where we saw Jesus take the wrath of God upon himself to save us who would believe in him. I deserve wrath. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And the depth, the breadth, the length, the width of God's love is most clearly seen when painted across the backdrop of God's wrath for sin. See, if God just, if Jesus just dies on the cross to just show us sacrificial love, that's foolishness. But if Jesus dies on the cross to take the wrath of God in your place, that is love greater than we've ever seen or known. Jesus going to the cross the night before says, Father, if there's any other way that this cup could pass from me, if there's any other way that I could not drink the cup of your wrath is what he's talking about. If there's any other way, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he obeyed the Father, went to the cross, and he took the full cup of God's wrath that was to be poured out on you and me because of our sin, and Jesus drank it. This is how you see the love of God. By recognizing what we deserve. Because of our sin against a holy God and his justice that he cannot let sin go unpunished. He would be corrupt if that were true. And he is not. He's righteous. He's true. He's just. He's holy. But his justice and his righteousness and holiness do not cancel out his love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness that is available to all who would believe and repent. The song famous, Christ alone, till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. This is what causes the Apostle John to write, what manner of love is this? What kind of love is this? That we ungodly enemies would be called sons of God. What manner of love is this that we would be called sons of God? And when we are rightly prosecuted for our sin, under the gravity of our sin, we declare, Lord, I need you. 
Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Why? My one defense. My defense against the wrath of God is Jesus, my substitute who took my place. He is my defense attorney saying, my blood has washed it clean. They are forgiven. They are spotless before the judge. My righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Cast all your hope, all your trust, all your confidence on Jesus this morning. Would you stand as we sing?